So can I, I say a couple things about coronavirus? It might be... No, we're not singing songs like that. I also don't want to hear the jokes about ticks and the lime. Okay, enough, right? A trope at this point. No, can I, I, I want to offer a couple things that I've been wrestling with that actually don't have much to do with uh, the virus itself. Like I said, I'm not an expert on, on things like that. And I don't want to pretend to be. And honestly, I haven't been personally affected by anybody with that. Um, a lot of you know that my dad was in the hospital this week. You know, if he got it, you know, something bad could happen. And I would, I would, um, I would be mortified. So I can't relate to that experience. What, um, what I have been thinking a lot about is watching what's happened societally. Um, and again, I don't have many scripted notes. I have two different colors of pen with one word things that I wrote down uh, yesterday throughout the day. Um, and so I just want to make a couple observations and maybe try to connect this with what, uh, what the role of the church could be going forward. Um, and again, this will have very little to do with the virus itself. The virus itself is the means for something else that I see that's important here. The first thing um, that I uh, saw, a couple people actually sent me this poem that was written. I don't know who wrote it. I didn't pay that much attention to it. But in the poem, they made reference to um, our sort of closed downness to the Jewish Sabbath. Has anybody seen this poem? Okay, it's kind of floating around. Um, the poem itself is fine. Uh, it was interesting. I, again, I don't know anything about the background. Um, but, you know, a lot of people don't realize, like, Sabbath's not Sunday. Okay, that's the Lord's Day. And the Christians, first Christians especially, never celebrated that as Sabbath. You would have Sabbath on Friday into Saturday, and then you would have the Lord's Day on Sunday because you couldn't do that on the Sabbath day. Does that all make sense? So the early Christians would have had a full weekend. You'd have Sabbath, Friday night into Saturday, and then you would have Sunday where your church would actually gather. You know, they were, they were double-dipping on the amount of religious requirements that they had. Um, but <laughs> I'm glad you laughed at that. Thank you. Um, but so Sabbath was always Friday to Saturday. What we've done with Sabbath in the modern world is we've made it like a self-care day off. And... I have a hard time finding anything biblical about that. Is it good to have self-care? Absolutely. Is it good to take time off? Sure. I wouldn't say that that's your Sabbath, because what's happened is like I meet pastors and they'll go like, what day is your Sabbath? And I'll say, Sabbath? Oh, no, no, which day do you take Sabbath? And I'll say, on Sabbath? Well, my Sabbath's Monday. No, it's not. That's your day off. That's not Sabbath. Sabbath is a very particular day. Here's why this is important. Because Sabbath is meant to be a communal experience, not an individual one. Sabbath is meant to be done by everybody together, and it's supposed to have a societal force to it. So when this poem says, um, you know, we're experiencing maybe something like what the Jewish people experience for Sabbath, that's actually not that far off. You know, if you were to go into Jerusalem um, on a Friday, everything's closed. Everything's shut down. So yes, are we experiencing something kind of like that? Maybe. Um, however, I want to push that metaphor further. Because Sabbath was actually a form of resistance for the Jewish people. Of saying, this is how culture works. 
It's on all the time. It's trying to create the world. We acknowledge that we did not create the world. We are recipients of that gift. And therefore, as God rested, we will rest, and we will not allow that kind of societal force of going all the time to define us. And um, my dad and I were actually talking about this while we were driving from Florida, and he brought up how America's always on. It, does that make sense? Do I need to flesh that out anymore? America's always on, right? We are the 24-7 culture. And um, I think if we want to put this in a divine way, I think God weeps for that because the command is to not always be on. And my dad made a poignant comment. He said, do you think this is going to backfire on us? Do you think our constant going, our constant availability is going to backfire? I think it has. And I think it has in a lot of ways, and I think it's only obvious now. And so one of the first things I'm noticing in this is that Maybe we don't need to use this current situation as a metaphor for the Jewish Sabbath. Maybe we need to learn from the Jewish Sabbath. Maybe we need to uh, resist our cultural norms a little bit more. And that will happen. Um, the government's never going to institute that as a, as a practice, right? Never going to command that everybody shuts down Friday night into Saturday. It's not going to happen. Can we steal a little bit of what Sabbath ought to look like and start making it more normal. So that's my first, my first thought. My, my second thought, this kind of builds on this, um, and again, this is just me speaking because I'm allowed to, I guess. Um, but you can cut me off at any point, it's fine. Um, you're already hearing the hope that we'll return to normal soon. Have you all heard this? Things will be back to normal soon, right? The stores are out of toilet paper. They'll have more toilet paper soon, right? You know what I mean? And we kind of have this, like, sports are canceled, but it'll return to normal soon. And we're quite advantaged that we're able to think that way. Right? And we're able to go like, okay, this, this might be difficult for a few weeks here, but everything is going to be back to normal soon, and we yearn for normal. A couple questions we could ask. Did what is normal help create the situation we find ourselves in now? Other question. Is what's normal in our culture actually insane? And this is where this goes for me, and I, I realize I, did, I was not raised as a hippie. I want to be clear about that. I was not. Um, I realize that sometimes things I say sound a little bit like I was at Woodstock. And I, I'm sorry for that. I don't mean to, honestly. Um, but what, what I think has happened is we've seen how fragile our economy and our way of life and um, our sort of comforts and luxury, how fragile that is. And this is not new. This has been talked about for a while, about how vulnerable our situation is. So particularly with food, right? We have a very linear food system. If we had a terrorist strike that knocked out our oil supply and we weren't able to get oil, how would you eat? You wouldn't. Again, I'm not trying to be hippie Woodstock on you. I'm just saying this is something that's been brought up before. Is 
it's really awesome that you can go to the grocery store and buy almost anything you can conceive of at any time of year. That's amazing. That's unprecedented in world history. What happens if that goes away and you're used to it? And all of a sudden, I think for some people for the first time in their lives, they went to the store to get something and couldn't get it and didn't know what to do. And that I'm sad for them in that individual experience. I also partly go, what if what is normal is a little bit insane? And I kind of bask in like, what if we could do this differently? Right? Like, what if things got so bad that this was my last cup of coffee ever? You realize how difficult it is for coffee to get here, right? A lot of stuff has to happen. What if this was my last cup of coffee ever? Because it wouldn't be available anymore. I'm not, we know that's not going to happen because everything will be back to normal soon. But, but what, if, what if we could start asking questions about how we could do that differently? Right? What if, what if that uh, specialized food snack item that you keep in your cabinet, what if that was the last one you ever had because something went so wrong that you're not able to have it anymore? And would this be a bad thing or would this actually be a good thing for you? Would this be a bad thing for our culture? Or might it be a good thing for our culture? And if it could be a good thing, does the church throughout the, the, the country and the church throughout the globe have an opportunity to start shifting culture so that it can not be as fragile as it is? I don't have an answer to that question. I just like the question. And I think it's a valuable question to ask. And so we talk about things like place economy here. And up until this point, for most of us, it's like, Tyler's a weirdo. He loves Wendell Berry too much. But here's what, what and I'm not going to flesh out everything that place economy is. You've heard the phrase before, I'm sure. If place economy happened, nobody would be scampering around for goods because we would have taken care of ourselves. You know what would also happen, and this is why we'll probably never do it, is your life throughout the majority of the years will be way full of way less luxury than it would otherwise. Because you can only get the things that you can get in the place. I just wonder if maybe our society is going in a direction that might not be helpful. And should we change that? And we're not going to change the whole thing, but can we change it a little bit? You know, we want to be a beacon. We want the farmhouse to be a beacon for folks. Maybe we could start asking questions about how uh, to do that. Um, any thoughts? I'm sorry, I just monologued for like 10 minutes. But those are, that seriously has been what's on my mind. And I don't mean to say that as like, I don't care if people are sick and uh, their sickness is an opportunity. I'm, I'm saying I haven't experienced that. Um, and I, I think that is mournful if any of that has happened. I am saying this is showing our country something. Whether or not we pay attention to it, I don't know. Uh, and again, that's all my opinion. Um, the beliefs represented in that last 10 minutes are not reflective of the United Methodist Church or whatever I'm supposed to say at the beginning of, of that thing. Uh,
Mm-mm. Yeah. But we experience what a shortage might feel like, even though I don't think there was an actual shortage. Um, I think what we actually saw was, remember we talked about the myth of scarcity a couple months ago? I said the book of Acts confronts two myths, the myth of scarcity and the myth of redemptive violence. We just saw the myth of scarcity, like in real time, of people going like, I don't know if I'm going to have enough of this. I'm going to take all of it. So I make sure I have enough. And now what happens? Somebody else goes, well, what if I don't have enough? And so they go. And, they, and then you're getting the pictures of the empty grocery stores. And most of us are sitting there going like, what are you doing? And it's the idea of I might not have enough, so not everybody else is against me, and I need to make sure I have enough. That's a myth of scarcity. And we talk. It is a myth. It's a myth because it's not true. At no point did anybody not have enough. They all thought they did. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, it has real effects if we believe that myth. Um, But we have to, like, just watch it live. And then I go to the grocery store yesterday morning because Quinn woke up at 4.30, and, you know, what else are you going to do? And so I went went to Chiefs in Wauseon. You know what I found there? They had everything. They had everything. It's like people forget that the smaller grocery stores exist. Anyways. Yeah. Like, like. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah, right. And and that actually might be a, a better idea of like a place economy thing. You have people out here who produce. Well, that, and that's, that's something I thought of, like, if I needed meat, right, over the next two weeks, I'd have it. I don't have to go to the store. Now, produce, we'd be a little bit low on right now because there's not a lot of active produce. Like, but, but that's, can, can, can we kind of get that, and I don't mean to sound like a, an old school type, but can we go back to that a little, just a little bit, still have your Kroger... Back to the land, you know, living in a community. <laughs> I am, I am kind of. Yeah, you're well, we're not making them eat the manure, <laughs> but maybe we should. Anyways. Right. Yeah. And, and I think my push there would be, can we make that normal? Right. Like, if I have, if I have the thought, kind of, okay, kind of saw this with, with my dad. I called my dad two days in a row for the first time ever. Well, not ever, but it doesn't happen much. And so I'm faced with, like, why, do I, why does it take a crisis for him for me to do the right thing? I should just do the right thing. Um, but yeah, no. So it's it's you have seen you know what's that uh, what's that quote of like look look for the people doing small acts of kindness, look for the helpers in the midst of a tragedy, look look for the helping people, um, and you definitely have seen it. And I hope what happens is it fosters connection amongst the people who engage. Hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I want you to know that slightly, you just articulated classical anarchism in a way, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Very libertarian, right? Is, you know, we shouldn't need these things, right? We shouldn't need any of these regulations and, and, and kind of top-down management to help solve problems. I mean, and that's what I saw when people were, were kind of yelling at um, um, the Ohio Department of Education about, like, you need to make the school free and reduced lunches available still because there's going to be kids who are in un unsafe homes um, or, or food insecure homes and they need to eat. And, and part of me is looking at, like, the Ohio Department of Education shouldn't have to do anything. Why are they food insecure in the first place? What have we done wrong here? And if we would all, if we would all do Acts 2, right? Go back to Acts 2. If we would all do Acts 2, yeah, we'd be fine. And we wouldn't be as fragile if something like this happened. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we're kind of getting to there's two there's two directions here. Is all of these good things, all of this responsibility, make it normal? Okay, this should define our communities regardless of what's going on. On the other hand, is there are things in our culture that should probably change, and can can we start incorporating some of those changes so that we're less fragile, we're less vulnerable to losing what is normal, but that's going to also mean changing what is normal. And one of the things Wendell Berry does say is, if you do this well, you will have a much healthier life. You're also going to lose a lot of luxury because those two are mutually exclusive. Um, and that's what I think keeps our culture from doing any of this in the first place. Is I, I, like, I like the stuff that I have in my house. right? I like the foods that I eat. Um, I, I like the entertainment that I get. I don't want to lose that. Um, and so certain things are possible because of the progress that we've made you know, over the last few centuries. Uh, it's also caused a lot of problems, and, and it's both and. And that's where I don't want to address this from a sociological point. From a theological point, I can't. And I can say this looks less like what we see throughout the, the text. And just using the Sabbath example, we, we see it very clearly there. Um, and so theologically, as a church, we can say those things. Now, sociologically, yep, let's have a, a more nuanced conversation about that. But um, all right, y'all want to move on to the book of Acts? There, there was no better way to end that conversation. <laughs> then if anybody does need toilet paper, we've got some that can be used. So here's what's happening in Acts 10. We're going to do Acts 9 next week. Um, and the reason that we're doing Acts 9 next week is because I get to choose which text I teach on. And I am willing to manipulate the schedule to get the ones that I want. And Acts 9 is one that I wanted. So we're doing Acts 9 next week. Um, so we're at Acts 10 and 11 today. Acts 10 and 11 is mostly the same story. Um, 10, it all happens. 11, it gets recapped for like the first two-thirds of the chapter. So they kind of work together. Um, so here's what's going on here is Acts 8, 
Philip goes to Samaria, which they hadn't gone to Samaria yet. They were supposed to go to Samaria. He ends up in Samaria. Good things happen. Um, Peter, who's going to show up in this story, shows up in Samaria and helps with that. Then Philip leaves, and he ends up seeing the Ethiopian eunuch, who we talked about last week. And he's faced with this problem. Do I honor and fulfill Torah, or do I do what God is commanding me to do that looks like a break from that? Okay, and we kind of felt his tension. Um, same thing's happening with Peter here. Is now Peter's in it, so then Acts 9 is going to be um, what we're doing next week, and it's a little bit disconnected. So take Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch, and now it kind of jumps into a similar story in Acts 10. So I'll, I'll read a little bit, and um, mostly we're probably just going to raise some questions. Here's what I'm hoping happens here, because I did not um, prepare anything, is I'm hoping just to invite you into the process where you get to watch me live interact with the text. So like, this is how I approach it. Here's how I'm reading. Um, and hopefully you guys can take some of those practices as you continue to study. So in Caesarea, is that the right? Caesarea. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius. So I read that and I go, Caesarea, what's the law? Where, what else do we know about Caesarea? We know that Caesarea was a town built by Herod and it was very elaborate and beautiful, and it was meant to honor Caesar, and there was marble walkways, and there was statues and all of this. And Jesus, at one point, does go to this place. And he goes there to proclaim what kind of Messiah he's going to be. And he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they kind of go back and forth. And then Peter says, Yo, you're the Messiah, the chosen one. And Jesus says, um, yeah, and I'm going to be killed. And Peter says, no, no, I'll never let that happen. And that's the famous, get, get behind me, Satan. And he says to Peter. Um, and so in Caesarea, Jesus says, I'm not like Caesar. I'm this kind of Messiah, and this is how it's going to work. So that's the last time we heard about this place. So there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian co cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. So you have a Gentile military commander in Caesarea, who's also a God-fearer who worships the one God of Israel. And this is a weird guy, okay? One afternoon at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He answered, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who was called Peter he is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. And then uh, he, the angel said some things, and then Cornelius sends two or three people, two slaves and a devout military uh, soldier to Joppa to go meet Peter. All right? So Peter's in Joppa. Now, it transitions here to Peter. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, so you can you imagine this scenario, he's on the roof and they're cooking and he smells like these things cooking and he's hungry. He must be doing intermittent fasting. It's in the Bible, right? Okay. Uh, and, and, and he smelled these things and then he's going to fall into a trance. It doesn't say dream, it says trance. Okay, so now you've got to ask what they're cooking downstairs. That was supposed to be funnier than you all made it sound like. All right, 
So verse 11, he saw the heavens opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Now, this is a reference to Leviticus 11, of which you get these sections broken down of what kind of animals you're allowed to eat and what you're not. And it's broken down into land animals, reptiles, and birds of the air. It also goes on to include insects, which the text in Acts does not mention. Okay? Then Peter heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, What God has made clean you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up from heaven. Now, if you walked in while we were doing 9 o'clock, you heard us arguing. And uh, you possibly heard me getting a little bit loud with my conversation. And it's because I see this differently than what people in the room were seeing. Okay? I hear this text used a lot to show why Torah doesn't matter anymore. Because God said, in Leviticus 11, you can't eat these things, and now I'm telling you that you can. I do not think that's what's happening here. Because of that line that I think is so important in verse is it 15, what God has made clean, you must not call unclean. Things that were made clean, where are we told what God has made clean? Leviticus 11. My interpretation is that on that sheet of those animals, the only land animals, reptiles, and birds that are there are the ones that were listed in Leviticus 11 as clean. And sometime over Jewish history, they started siphoning down um, the animals that they would eat to protect themselves from breaking Torah. And this is something you see Jesus confront a lot, where he says, you all do this, but that's not the actual rule. The actual rule is that you do this. And in fact, by trying to create these little side rules to protect yourself, you've ignored the main point. And you've gotten off track. And so I've come not to destroy Torah, but to fulfill it, because you guys have gotten off track. I think that's what's happening <coughs> here as well. Okay, so, verse 17. Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of this vision that he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. What's the story referencing? Like I said, I didn't prepare anything. And I, and I want you to see that my first thought when I read that paragraph is it's a reference to something very specific. What is it? How many of you think the Bible is important? You should know this story, okay? Yes. Three strangers show up, and how does Abraham respond? 
offers them food, hospitality. Do you know how much bread he makes? Would have been like 500 loaves of bread. Okay, and he kills a large animal. It means that he throws a party because these strangers come. Peter here has three strangers appear at his door, and his response is to let them in and give them lodging. I think the text wants you to see Peter just like Abraham and start making connections between Genesis 17 and 18 and 19 with uh, Acts 10. Okay? So, so again, that's something, as you're reading the text, you're looking for these connections. You're looking to see, how do I help make sense of what's going on here? And here's the problem. Here's the reason I, I asked that question, and not to be confrontational, is that if you don't do that, if you're not able to make those connections, you end up having to make stuff up to make sense of this. And you know how much bad theology has been created because somebody goes, ah, I don't know quite what's going on here, but it kind of sounds like this. Let's just say it's this. And now we have this thing. And, and it takes people actually making the connections to go, you missed the whole thing. Baptism is a great example. You know how many people, those of you who have discipled with me, you know this. You sit down and we'll do the baptism story. And I'll say, make sense of it. And you got to start going like, so something with the water, uh, this, this thing, or this thing. No. Every story of Jesus' baptism is trying to paint a picture of Genesis. And it's blatantly obvious if you've read Genesis. And now it becomes easy to understand Jesus' baptism. If you don't do that, it gets a little bit tricky. All right? So that's, that's why all that's uh, really important. Um, so then... As this goes on, they interact. Then Peter uh, shares the good news with Cornelius who remember is a God-fear. Um, and it's a little bit similar to what Stephen does in Acts chapter 7. Um, and then the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit, and, and Peter even says, it's like just like it was with us back, he doesn't say Acts chapter 2, but back at, 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 at that moment when we received the Spirit. All right, so now what do we do with this? Um, again, Acts 11 goes on to, Peter recounts the story to the church at Jerusalem. Um, Yeah, what do we do with this? <clears throat> Does anybody have any any thoughts? Like you hear that story, again, I don't have a, a title. I don't have an ending for us. It's how do we interpret this now? Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Now he's saying, okay, so now the Gentile people are then. Okay. You have to make a connection with Acts 8, right? The Ethiopian eunuch. What's Philip's situation? Deuteronomy 15 says, no eunuchs. Isaiah 66 says, eunuchs. What do you do if you're Philip? And you want to honor your tradition. Same problem here. Except, the story here starts with food. Is this about food? Verse 28. 
what, what does he not say there? He says, I should not call anyone. He doesn't say, he doesn't reference the thing. And, and you can look at Peter there and go, God didn't say that. He said, what I have made clean. And that's where you have to go, oh, this isn't about food. This is about what? People. See, we want to make that first part of Acts 10 about how we don't have to eat kosher anymore in Leviticus 11 and uh, Torah doesn't matter. We don't have to follow the law, just like Paul said, even though he didn't say that. Instead, that whole thing is simply to set up Peter's experience, which is, oh, this Gentile centurion is also a God-fearer, worshiper of Israel's God, and what am I going to do with him? Welcomes him in. He welcomes them in. Why does he welcome them in? Because God has made them clean. And yes, you have portions of Torah that say, be careful of becoming unclean by interaction with your neighbors. But to actually not be able to interact with a foreigner is it not in Torah. It's not. It became that way. And what God has made clean, don't call unclean. Don't miss that. And so this, I think, really does go back similarly to the Ethiopian eunuch. Have you, have you called anything unclean? Have you called anybody unclean? Have you said that I cannot have interaction with them? And this is so strange. This, this is like when the coronavirus is going on. <laughs> You could definitely make a case for that. But you're supposed to welcome the stranger and the foreigner, which, by the way, Peter does before any of this happens, right? Before he make, kind of connects the dots here. He welcomes these people who are Gentile. He's not supposed to, according to Jewish tradition, not according to Torah. You know what I mean? So I think, I think this, what invites us to do, is similar to uh, um, last week, if you were here. Of, do you have demands for people that God doesn't have? Do, do you have requirements for what people need to do, be like, think, believe, before they can be in? And do you also see, and I said this last week, none of you would be welcomed into the body under the orig original circumstances. And somebody changed them for you. And now you're here. So I think this is, this is all about pushing that boundary further and further and further while also challenging misconceptions. And I think we need to have that phrase like written somewhere. What God has made clean, do not call unclean. Okay? Um, now, interestingly, Acts 11, if anybody has it, go to the bottom of Acts 11, uh, the last section. Uh, verse 27 in Acts 11, I just thought this was ironic. I'm not trying to make light of it. At that time, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine over all the world. Oh, no. <laughs> and this took place during the reign of Claudius. The disciples determined that according to their ability, each would send relief to the believers living in Judea. And they did, sending it to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So, is just a little bring it back to what's happening in our culture right now. They have a famine over all the world. How do the disciples respond? Each, according to their ability, does the right thing. And they give of themselves and of their money and all of that to
to help their brothers and sisters. It's a good picture, okay? That's, I mean, that's very similar to what you were saying, Kelly. Is, yeah, that's the response. We get a very clear example of that right here. All right. Um, we're not doing communion today um, for obvious reasons. Um, if you would like to, I can pour you your own glass um, and you can get your own piece of bread or something. Um, I am going to make some lunch if anybody wants to stick around and eat um, and continue to hang out and get each other sick. Um, that's a joke. I'm, I'm kidding. I don't actually want that to happen. Um, other than that, we will plan on still meeting next week. We'll see how things progress. If things get worse, then just look for, look for information to be put out. But that being said, may all of you as you go, may you stay healthy, may you stay well, and may you continue to find the right thing to do in your context, making sure that you don't call anything unclean that God has made clean. Grace and peace be with all of you as you go. Thank you.